Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. Um, bringing this to you pretty much live from our Argentina. Uh, I am down here in a place, beautiful place called La Rioja for their uh, nationals. We're kind of midweek, halfway through the comp, and I thought it'd be really fun. I've been getting a lot of questions lately about folks heading off to their first comps uh, this winter down in Rolden Neal in Mexico and stuff. And so I thought it'd be fun to put some really good comp pilots uh, on a, in a little group. Well, this is the first, one, first time we've done this, little group talk about uh, competitions. So we talk about gaggle flying and starts and headspace and safety and wings and finding good lines and strategy and pretty much A to Z of comps. So I think you're going to really enjoy this. My uh, my guests are, they're from all over the world. Francisco Manteras, who's, uh, who's has been on the last two worlds teams uh, for Argentina and uh, really, really good pilot, lives in the States right now, but um, is doing super well here. I think he's in second or third right now overall. Uh, the Canadian, but originally from Belgium, uh, JP Van de Bajain. I don't think I'm saying his last name right, but uh, JP or Robert, uh, great dude, an awesome pilot. has been flying since 1998, been in a lot of comps. And, uh, and lastly, a uh, Taiwanese guy, but also living in the States, Chin Chin Huang, we call him Jimmy, uh, and has also been flying comps for a long time. So I just had sat these guys down, and uh, you'll hear some traffic noise in the back, and you'll hear a lot of bugs. We're at this hotel, we're outside. Um, Francisco was packing a reserve when we were doing this, so there's some noise. We are not in the studio, as you can tell, with the noise behind me, but um, super fun talk, a lot of laughs, and you're going to enjoy it. And before we get into it, uh, one of the questions that was asked that I didn't get to on that last uh, last Ask Me Anything show was uh, one of our Patreon supporters asked if, if I could lay out like the perfect dream year if i could go anywhere and uh to fly every month of the year where would i go and a little bit of thoughts behind that so i put together a little list here this is just if i had the year off and uh plenty of cash and i just wanted to fly uh, my brains out and these are the places that i would certainly think about going so month by month uh, January, which is actually what I'll be doing this year, is I'd, I'd go to Valle de Bravo. Pretty hard to beat Valle. Uh, the comp scene there is awesome. The flying there is totally reliable. Uh, the food's great. It's cheap. Uh, the, the pilots are awesome. And uh, Miguel runs the best show on earth in my mind. Um, so that's that'd be where I would go and actually is where I'm going this January. Uh, in February, depends on what you'd want to focus on, but uh, you know, a great place to go is Roll to Neo, Colombia, for nice soft thermals, great flying, great cloud flying. Uh, a lot of people have been down there. There's always lots, lots of comps there that time of year. I'm going to be down there actually this year for the British Nationals, which end I think the February February 2nd, but February is still a really good month. December, January, February are all really good months in Roll to Neo. Um, I'd also think about going to El Hierro in, in the Canaries to practice acro. Uh, I've heard that that's super relaxing and a really nice time to be there. You can also, of course, think about New Zealand, Australia. Those are good months to be down in either of those zones. Uh, March, I've been hearing really good things about Costa Rica, very reliable flying, 60, 100K triangles every day. Um, so that and that would certainly be on my list. I've never flown down in Costa Rica. That'd be pretty fun. Or you can head down to Brazil and do like Baixu Guandu or uh, any of the number of amazing sites they've got in that huge country. March can be a really good time down there. They often have comps that time of year down there as well. Uh, April, 
I would go to beer in India. Uh, right now is the time to be in beer India in the fall for total reliability, but April is the time for the really big flights. So there's a lot more down days, still a lot more weather than there is in the fall, um, but that's when you get a lot more instability. It's a lot colder, and get, but you can get way tall and push it way back into the deep Himalaya there. That that would be uh, that would be pretty fun. That's been on my list for a long time. I've flown beer a couple times, but always in the fall, which is a much narrower uh, season, but very reliable. And that's happening right now. Those of you who are watching X Contest, you're seeing flights from there every day. That kind of starts early October and goes through about the 10th of November, typically. Um, April, I'd also think about the Alps. Some of the lower sites in the Alps, the higher sites are still too snowy, but places like Annecy and uh, La Raña and uh, the Mar Maritime Alps down south can be really good in April. Um, the last few years they've had big flights for like two or three days in a row but then you know there's also a lot of downtime but i really like spring flying in in europe and it doesn't tend to be uh, great where i live in sun valley but another place you can think about going is like the sierras start getting pretty good in april uh in out in california in may uh Again, the Alps, I have been completely shut down in May and I've had some of the best flights of my life in May. So pretty hit and miss on the weather. Um, the Sierras are pretty reliably producing that time of year. They can also be pretty bad. May is kind of tough, you know, around the world's the monsoon season. Um, so May is tricky, but uh, you know, that, that can be a fantastic time to hit the Sierras and then as we move into June but also May you know that's when I did the Alaska Traverse um, I would go back to Alaska in a heartbeat that's the time to be there any of the really northern areas so uh, Norway Sweden Scotland uh, <clears throat> those are the, that's the months those are the months May and June to be in any of those places and you know for me Scotland or Alaska pretty hard to beat uh, July, I'd be smack dab home in Sun Valley. Um, I used to, I used to would have said, <clears throat> I used to have said probably August in Sun Valley, but these days <clears throat> in the West, in the U.S., it's just the fire season's vicious. It's getting us every year. It used to be like every 10 years. Um, you know, say what you will about climate change, but it's hammering us. And so uh, it's pretty unbreathable often in August at home these days. So uh, July is when I had the big flight a bunch of years ago. That tends to be when we get our, our biggest air. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, you, you have a lot of down days, but pretty much anywhere in the Rockies, uh, July is a pretty magical month. And uh, the other one I'd consider to be the Caucasus between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea across Mount Erebus, the highest mountain in Europe. And uh, that whole range has been very intriguing for a long time. There's some political stuff going on there and you know some things are maybe not totally safe uh, from that side, of the, uh, from that standpoint, but that'd be certainly a place I would take a look at. In August, uh, I'd be up in Canada, up in Pemberton or Golden. Uh, there's been some amazing flights going down up there the last couple of years. August is getting late. Certainly by the end of the month, um, you're not getting long flights. It starts to get pretty stable, but uh, terrific time to be up there. Again, if the fires aren't too bad. Uh, the other place I would certainly consider is Mongolia, Pakistan. Uh, those would be a couple places that would be pretty magical that time that time of year. September, I kind of struggle with this one. September is an amazing month at home, but uh, the big flights have been that they've seen these uh, things really dry out in the over the. Uh, 
the Wyoming Flats, uh, Bill Belcourt and Cody McTank and Chris Galley and all those guys that are based out of uh, Salt Lake have been doing huge flights from a couple different sites, one Porcupine and another lab. They fly right down uh, a freeway, so it's pretty tame. Uh, you can fly in a lot of wind there, and they do some huge distance. If they could make that work in July, uh, they would go a really, really, really long way. But typically, it just ODs every day um, through about end of August. So um, September is proving a really nice stomping ground to hit, hit some big downwinders there. Um, in October, like I said earlier, uh, Beer India is pretty hard to beat. You fly almost every day. Um, fantastic triangles there and just food. I mean, the whole scene there is terrific. Um, the other one I'd consider, of course, is the Sertal, Brazil, which I did last year. Uh, Quiche does the most widely known place, but now they're doing these great toes from Keiko and uh, Patu, and there's a bunch of sites. But that's, of course, where the current world record stands um, from Tasima, which is a really tough place to make work. Uh, hats off to those guys to, to make that work. But um, that's a lot of big patience game you're going to be waiting around a lot to fly out of Tasima, but uh, more reliably you go to Kishida or go to Patu or one of the other sites that's further inland and uh, test your your heavy wind skills and flying over some pretty pretty rocking terrain uh, November Chile or Argentina now that I'm down in Argentina for this comp this place is super cool I've heard great things as, as well about Chile they've got an, uh, their nationals are next month in November in Santiago I've heard great things about that so I would put those on the list and then uh, December yeah, I mean, New Zealand, Australia, you can do the flatland thing over to Niloquin and, and the towing, that is really hot and a lot of flies, uh, but they do huge distances there. Also a really nice time when the flats aren't working, you can head up into Bright and do some cool mountain flying or hill flying really for Australia. But uh, And then uh, a couple of I guess it was two years ago now, I went down and did uh, a race in Zapoltec, which is outside of Guadalajara in Mexico, which is really cool, surrounded by big volcanoes. And they're gonna have a PWC there this year. So uh, if you're, you know, if you've done Valle a lot and you're looking for a new place in Mexico, that would be uh, top of the list. So there you go, 12 months of, uh, that'd be a pretty epic year if you could pull all those off or even just a few. So uh, those are my recommendations. There are many, many more wonderful places to fly but those are the ones that came to the top of my mind uh, immediately. And uh, let's get into it. Here's the show. And please enjoy this, this uh, talk with some really good comp pilots uh, live here in Argentina. Apologize for the sound, but it's what it is. Enjoy. Okay, hey guys, uh, thanks for joining me here. We're all in Argentina and I'll do a whole pre-thing before this, so we're just going to get right into it, but uh, why don't you just give me your names and a really brief kind of comp history, and that'll give the audience uh, a little bit of know-how about who, who you are and your various accents. Okay, so uh, my accent is typically French probably, but in, in reality it's a bit Belgian. So my name is Robert Renan-Bagin, I come from Belgium, I'm flying now for Canada because that's where I live. So uh, I've been uh, flying comps for a very, very long time. I think my first comp was 98 or something by the time we took pictures. But I was quite uh, not really at it. So uh, I stopped competing and I went back. So uh, I won two times the Belgian championship and this year I am the Canadian champion. So 
it's quite uh, quite funny for me to be champion of two countries, uh, and I, I'm I'm into uh, some PwC sometimes, but not that much. I have quite a lot of work, so it's a bit uh, difficult for me to to manage everything and be able to compete a lot. And so from year to year, it depends. And you've been in Quebec how long now? Uh, it's been three year and a half now. And the flying's good there. Yeah, flying is super nice. A few days of the year only, but <laughs> but it's nice. When it flies nice, it's nice. And what's JP? JP stands for uh, Jean-Pierre and Robert. But uh, my, uh, you know, my, na my name is Robert. Okay, yeah. but we go by JP. JP is okay. Yeah, yeah okay. If you like it. Uh, I'm used to that too, so no worries. Well, my name is Jimmy. Uh, my real name is actually Huang Jinjie. I'm uh, originally uh, made in Taiwan and recently uh, exported to the U.S. about 30 years ago. So uh, I raced kind of on and off. I was racing really seriously from 2009 to 2012. Had a serious accident, so I kind of stopped for five years. So now I'm just kind of coming back to the racing scene since like 2016 and stuff like that. So I do this more recreationally. I'm not as accomplished as uh, Robert here, but just trying to play the game and learn the, learn the sport and having fun. Well, good to have you back. Thank you. Hi there. My name is Francisco. I'm from Argentina. And uh, I've been flying for a long time, but uh, competing not for so long, although my first competition was in uh, 2003. And then the second maybe was in 2007 or so. And then I got really into it uh, about uh, 2011, I think, when I bought my first uh, comp wing, I could say. And uh, since then, I've been really engaged with this, and I enjoy it. And you've uh, tell us about your world's experience. Was you, you've been on the world's team for Argentina? Yeah, actually, I competed the worlds uh, two times already yeah. with the team. I've been in the team since then. Uh, that was 2015, the first worlds I did, and then the second one in Italy in 2017. And uh, it was a great experience. And I'm um, here in Argentina now competing the national championship to try to stay in the in the team as I need to be ranked within the first four of the country. Yeah, so. cool. And and do you call Argentina still home or is the U.S. home? You know what? Uh, both are home, I guess, because I work in, in the States and I spend a lot of time. But, uh, of course, my home original is in Argentina. And uh, I think my heart is in Argentina, I should say. Yeah, cool. He's been cooking us up some uh, insane barbecue. I have to m redo my house now to make a proper Argentinian barbecue. It's been <laughs> amazing food. Thank you. I'm glad you like it. It's my pleasure. So let's just stick with you, uh, Francisco. Um, I wanted to get into, we get a lot of questions about people that are just getting into comps. And if you could kind of rewind the clock and, you know, and share with us a little bit about what you've learned. Um, let's talk about before you launch. You know, like gear, headspace, you know, uh, I always talk about, and it's not my thing, and Nate Scales always says, no schoolboy errors. You know, we had a friend of ours forget his instruments today. Like, that's the kind of stuff that uh, I'm looking for here. Like, what are the things that you've learned to be relaxed or kind of get into that right frame of mind? Well, I used to actually even write notes for myself that I should read even a few days before starting a comp. And those notes were like, Stay away from the from the party gang, you know. Stay away from from drinking. Stay away from uh, staying up late. Very well in that. 
I don't seem to succeed, but <laughs> but that's the idea. <laughs> but that's the idea, at least. And I, I was serious about it a, a few years ago. Now I'm starting to relax a little bit more. I guess, too, because I learn better and I have more experience. So I guess I don't commit so many mistakes as I used to. Mm. Those mistakes, I've been erasing mistakes by you know, maybe writing these notes. Mm. So I used to need to read them every time. Now I, I think I assimilated them. So. And do you have any kind of like uh, set routines? You know that you do every time, no matter what. Like, do you do you like to launch early, late? Do you do you have any kind of set routines with your gear, charging instruments? You know, just. Well, yeah, I have my own routines of charging and controlling my equipment before um, I can't really remember exactly right now all the routine because it's already so assimilated that I just do it. But uh, then in terms of taking off early or late or wait for whatever, I just adapt to the day. Mm. If I see that the day is going to be strong and, and fast to, to go up, I guess I take off only, not, not I wouldn't say minutes, but maybe half an hour before the start. That supposedly helped uh, gives me enough time, enough time to, to be at the top. But some days are super slow or, or launch is complicated. So uh, those days I try to launch earlier. So I just adapt to each day. Yeah, for me, I, I kind of have a system. You know, I kind of do the same thing every time. I buckle in the same way so I don't forget something. And then right before I take off, I tend to kind of pat myself, make sure my harness is on correctly. I always grab my reserve handles three times on both sides just to know where it is, a little muscle memory thing. Just make sure instrument's on, everything's ready because once you're in air, you kind of game on. You don't want to kind of make these little mistakes, you know, something you could have solved on the ground. Mm. It's one less thing to worry about. That's kind of my system. Uh, yeah, I have different routines and uh, I, I can, uh, well, about takeoff first. Uh, usually when I go to a country I never visited, uh, I would take off quite early uh, because I'd like to uh, learn the day, you know, as it goes. So to take off early is good, uh, good thing, certainly as you enter the competition, to understand how the air will evolve during the day. That's one point. Another thing is I listen to music. So I have two different songs. One song for sleep and one song for uh, to concentrate, just to focus uh, before the start or before the takeoff. So I would uh, probably get out of the group, uh, listen to some music, my, my song, just to s switch my mind to, to the competition and then uh, I'm ready to go. How did you identify that song? Is it the same song all the, all the time? Uh, it's always the same. And it's a song I use when I'm running. And it's a song that has uh, different beats mm. and uh, some powerful beat for sprints. And I like, you know, adrenaline and sprints. And so that's, that's how it, the flow comes. Okay. Yeah. You just brought up something. How do you guys approach um, fitness with flying, with, with uh, either competitions or just XC flying? Is it is it? something you think about is it important is it, it is it is more and more important i think today uh in the past uh for me the most important was uh to be able to to stand long flights uh now i'm okay with that of course you need to take care of yourself so drinking eating and stuff like that uh, uh but still now uh, i need to prepare myself uh, before going to the camp 
So I do some gym and workouts and uh, yeah, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said, the food is also very important. Uh, so when you come to a new country, uh, maybe switching from one food to the other can be problematic. So you have to make it quite uh, slowly and adapt yourself. So I always come with my food also from, from home and try to have always the same kind of, uh, of eatings. So I eat rice most of the days. Or so pasta. Something real simple. And yeah, use, simple, basic You know, it's not going to make you sick. And Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I'm going to start this next question off with a story. I was just over in Macedonia for the Nordic Opens, and you guys probably saw all the really tragic news in the British Opens. Uh, the British Nationals, I think it was the last day, they had a mid-air collision, and uh, both the pilots died. Quite unusual. Um, one was a very experienced pilot. Um, uh, and the other was actually not in the competition, um, but was free flying and, and, you know, obviously they got screwed up in the air and, um, so super sad. Um, but it was, it was quite interesting. The very, the next comp was being run by the same organizer, Goran, who you all know. And, uh, and he made a comment that I thought was, was, was really interesting that the, the accidents these days, like, you know, back in the Peter Hita days in the two line of the initial two liners with the R11 and the R10 and stuff, it was like, you know, we were all just hanging on waiting for the blow up and you just don't see these gliders blowing up anymore. Like the, the places for accidents, uh, you know, especially in a comp like the one we're in here in Argentina, where it's not a PWC, everybody's not on two liners. There's a lot of B's, there's a lot of C's. You know, the turning circumference is different. Um, the knowledge is different. The ability level is different. And he was just ramming like, you know, hey, the dangerous thing here is the gaggles. You know, it's it's it, it's at the start and everybody's together. It's like the most dangerous time in the race. And I, I kind of found some new appreciation for that. So I want to ask you guys about how to gaggle fly, but also, you know, what do you think about that? And, and what do you think about you know the the risk of gaggle flying and do you for me uh, that's not the biggest risk i think when i fly the, depending on the gaggle of course but most of the gaggle i play with or fly with are totally okay uh it depends on the day so i've been in some gaggles in in, in competition in pwc in france where the gaggle was each individual flying by itself away from each other and uh so yeah, it depends on the day for sure. But uh, I think flying mountains and you know lee side stuff are still maybe more uh, more well I would say more dangerous for me I think uh, because uh, pushing the bar on the uh, you know on the lee sides and stuff like that we still see pilot doing it and it's a bit weird. Um, yeah. Yeah, and maybe, maybe I should rephrase that. I, I, he wasn't he wasn't saying it was more dangerous for sure, but that was just a risk that maybe some people were underappreciating, and 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 was really I think what 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 caught me was that uh, you know I I've really backed off my aggression in yeah. in in gaggles, especially at the start, because I, there's no point. It doesn't really seem like, you know, that there's not really any point in like really tightening, you know, turning tighter than everybody else because at the start, it's the start, you know. It's, yeah, but the point of the start is race. there is only one place where you want to be is the at the correct uh, place and the highest. So still the fight is already on, I think. Uh, but you're right. So we have to be aware. And I agree with you, but it's the same for 
when we are flying uh, little groups, uh, whether in the flats or on the mountains. I mean, there's no point to risk lives of each other uh, by a collision or whatever, or pushing someone outside of the thermal. The, the funny thing is about paragliding is one of the sport that you have, where you have to cooperate with your competitors. In many other sports, you fight with them, and here you need them. So just take care of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let's, okay, so before we get into gaggle flying, um, let's talk about starts. How do you get a good start? What are you thinking about? You know, how are you trying to maneuver? Because um, the start is super important. It's been really important here, and it, and they're so fun. I love starts. Yeah, I think it's it's really about timing and kind of going back a little bit about gaggle flying a little bit, kind of before we move on to the start. For me, like, it's almost like you have to share the space. And sometimes when you fly with your friends enough, you kind of have a relationship with them. You kind of wave them over. You kind of briefly talk to them or like gesture or just do a little head nod or something like that to kind of like indicate or just look at them to let them know you see them. And so they're aware. And that's what happens. You know, usually in a tight situation, let's say if you have a, a slow day like in Australia this year in PwC at the bright, you know, the takeoff was there was really weak condition. There's only really one or two house thermal. And you have an entire 150 guys and girls, you know, just circling as high as it can and with free flyers flying through the the gaggle is pretty crazy but at the same time it's, it works out you know it's great but that's that's where the fun is you know that's fun the sport you know your eyes open and you know you're, you're just doing it and for me timing wise i just try to just relax just get to the top and i think with time and experience you're gonna kind of figure a way how to kind of position yourself in the right place and i think that's kind of where the magic the, the flying is for me uh, yeah, I would add something is that uh, maybe for me, at least the last 15 minutes is some very, are some very important minutes for me. I need to be already at the position there. Uh, it's uh, no way that the last 15 minutes I, I should be moving from one place to the other or whatever. So, so you've kind of set your, this yeah, is at, where I'm going to be, I'm going to make this work. Yeah, so when I take off, uh, my my first aim or objective is to really understand where it will, well, the start will happen. And how, and it was interesting two days before or yesterday, I don't remember, that we were drifting with the wind. So there was a tempo and you do it one, two times and then you know how long it takes to, to drift with the turmoil and to get back to your position. And by the time you have to learn it and to understand how it goes to be just there at the right moment at the right place. So it's important. Yeah, let's talk about this. You know, how in all these years you've been flying, Francisco, you know, how have you learned to climb better, be at the top, be in the right position for a start? Well, uh, back to the gaggle and, and start, uh, I would say the start is the biggest gaggle of the race. So first of all, in terms of security and safety, uh, you need to recognize whoever is around you. So sometimes uh, I've been in uh, like in super final gaggles, start gaggles, or any gaggle actually, because it's super final and, and the worlds are super tight and big goggles uh sometimes it's super aggressive but you know who you who you have around and those are so professional pilots that you're not afraid of them at all but sometimes in a comp like like this one uh where you have uh, different levels then you really need to recognize who's around you and then you need to be more aware or less aware depending on your surrounding and uh in terms of me positioning at the top I don't know what I do. I just um, 
you know, I uh, observation for me is, is is a big thing. Flying goggle. When you're out of the goggle, you're flying on your own. It's all about feeling. But uh, when you're flying the goggle, it's observation. And the minute you miss something, you lose a few spots, a few meters for sure. I think you hit on the thing I was looking for here is that I th- I, th- I find that the best pilots are, I always think about like Josh Cohn with the swivel head. He sees everything. He's got like 10 eyes, you know? And I think that the, the lower hours pilots are really locked into what's here. And the better pilots are, and sorry, the audience can't see what I'm doing. I'm talking like tunnel vision versus, you know, looking at really swir- swirling around yep. and seeing everything. Because it's all those half a meters. It's the little better climb that he's getting and she's getting and you got to move. Exactly. Just a few meters make, make the difference many times. Yeah. 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 Let's, before we move on from gaggle flying, let the, let's stay that for, let's stay there for a bit as we move down the course. Um you know, in the beginning, when I first started racing, I could hang with the lead gaggle for like two or three climbs and then inevitably I would lose them. And, you know, of course it's just practice, but the question I get all the time is how do I stay with that gaggle? And I, I don't, I don't know that there's just a, well, here's the answer, but I'd like to hear your answer. It seems like it's just hours and practice, but yeah, yeah. You're saying it is practice, but, um, I guess, uh, there's two ways of approaching and, and catching up with the, with the front gaggle. Maybe not the lead goggle, but at least the front goggle, the goggle you have in front of you, is one is under, the other one is pretty much the same altitude, and the other one is above. The safer one is always above, and hopefully will be the best one and faster too, because normally the thermal, as you go higher, sometimes it gets better, and then flying at higher altitude normally is faster, so it's the best way for me. But sometimes uh, there's no other way than just pushing low, and uh, counting on luck to try to get the thermal before the big gaggle. Maybe you're low, but you catch it before, and hopefully you catch up. So it it also it always depends on the day and the way it's working. In my set of rules of my little notebook, um, I have different. See, I put I say if the day is lo- is slow, always catch up uh, from above. But if the day is strong, maybe you can catch up from under. Hmm. So it really depends on the day you have to adjust. Yeah. Um, the, the, uh, the, this was one of the kind of breakthroughs I had at one point was, that, you know, when, when we're first learning, we're told you top out every climb. Talk about how that really does not apply in racing. Yeah. Sometimes when you actually top off, I mean, depending on what type of glide you're flying, um, when you top off, you're actually spending too much time climbing because as the thermal reaches the top, it actually peters out a little bit. Um, there's also another thing when, when the thermal actually flow out, you know, you kind of go through the falls and that could actually take all that time you spent topping off and you just wasted falling out outside of the thermals on either side of it. So you have something to say there, JP. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also what matters is the, um, the, the lift, the, if the lift is very strong, maybe it's best to stay in it. Not to leave it. Uh, usually it works like that, that uh, even the leaders, they are pushing a bit and they're leaving too early some terminals. And then you simply stay in and you catch up easily. So it, it really depends on the, con- the conditions, I guess. Um, I wanted to say also that you maybe sometimes you don't have to stay with the gaggle. Uh, I would recommend to stay uh, as much as you can. But even today I had a strange experience when I... I changed the route, so the, the the lead gaggle were on the mountains. I crossed the flats, and I was way above everybody, and I, I reached 
I, I managed to reach uh, and uh, get in, in touch with the lead gaggle, but I was above them. So I could top them, stay on the same terminal with them. And then it was uh, kind of easy and relaxing. Uh, yeah, moments. I mean, when, when you have a good idea, don't be a lemming, I think, for sure, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah you know, exactly. I, don't, don't distrust your good ideas because you can't have them. I think there's it's easy to get locked into the gaggle mentality, but sometimes you can have a good idea like you did today and yeah. it really works out. Yeah. I think the um, the other thing about gaggle flying it seems like is is uh, you know if there's if it's a big gaggle and you're you're at the bottom of it and everybody goes you know taking that time to climb to where they were is, is pointless because if everybody's out in front of you you can use them like ping pong balls you can see who's getting the lift and you know by the end of that next glide you're gonna have caught up. You know, that I think often you don't really need to top it out if you're at the bottom of the gaggle. Yeah, yeah, but know? being at the bottom, I think the, the, well, you have to be really mentally strong to be at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And it works. So uh, at some points, I remember uh, a competition I was in uh, Pedro Bernardo. Uh, everybody was staying at the mountain. Nobody wanted to go to the next waypoint on the flat because they thought, oh, it's too early. And I went. Of course, I, it took me a bit of time to find the, way, the, the lift, sorry. And uh, when I catched it, everybody came. They were above me, of course, because I lost a lot of altitude to find this. Uh, I s literally saw the whole camp passing above me. So I said, OK, I'm not grounded yet, so the task is on. And I won the task at the end. Really? So, yeah, it yeah. was amazing. So it's possible. It's always possible. You never know what will happen uh, in the next, uh, next moves. I really agree with um, what you're saying there because you never know. There's just so many variables out there and there's so many different factors that affect a day. I mean, the league aggro might be a little, you know, tactical, kind of calculating where they're going to go, seeing who's around them and kind of keeping their um, place. And maybe they will let some people go, let them sniff out the thermals and while they kind of keep their, you know, competitors more at bay, you know, they might let other guys just go ahead and just kind of sniff things out, you know. So I think that's kind of another play you could do, just kind of use the every pilot's out there to kind of gauge, you know, how the day is and stuff like that. Mm. Well, the only thing I have to say about that is uh, there's two different animals in this in this sport. The comp of the, the PWC and the professional, where uh, if you leave the gaggle, for sure they're going to win against you. You'll never beat the gaggle. But in this kind of small comps, Sometimes the single moves are uh, really they really pay off. Like the move the rover did today, uh, we were we were doing some kind of uh, gaggle flying, and all of a sudden he showed up in the valley higher than everyone. So that was a single move, and it worked. That in PwC most likely won't work. So there's two different things there that you have to recognize. Let's jump to that then. So. Talk about what you shouldn't do. What are the things that you've learned all these years that like, okay, I didn't need to learn that lesson again. Like me the first day, you know, I, I, I made a break too early. I do it all the time, uh, in a great position, was in a really good spot to, to, to win the race. And I broke too early and I didn't stay with you guys. I didn't stay with the gaggle. And it's, it's a let, it's like Russ Ogden calls it discipline. Well, I think you're talking about my huge mistake today. No, I'm today. talking about me. <laughs> oh, you did. Okay. I yeah. did it today. Okay. I was leading the whole comp pretty much today. And at the end, I was uh, so in this mental aggressive mode that I kept pushing. Well, when I was actually the highest and I could uh, just stay above everyone to, go, to, to hit the last turn point and make it go first. 
And instead, I was so pushy today that I just left the gaggle on my own again, once again, and uh, thinking that I was uh, doing good. And the gaggle behind really went up so high that uh, passed me above. Yeah, Yeah. they got me. So So globally, that's lack of discipline. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, because if you find yourself on top of everyone, what's, what's the rush of leaving that place? You know, just stay there, check it out, breathe, you know, relax for a moment and say, what's my position? What's next? How far I'm from goal? And should I leave or stay? And then you make your decision. No, today I just didn't think at all. I just pushed. Big mistake. I think I think Gavin's trying to uh, kind of refer to a situation me and him got into the first day of the comp. We were like super psyched and just went out and charged ahead and got super low. And kind of vice versa today, while me and Francisco's out in front, he's waving at me to go. And I kind of left him and kind of went to the flats by himself. So he's kind of getting back at me a little bit for that. But, you know, as, as we said before, the, the day varies so much. You never know what's going to happen. I mean, every move counts. I, I just think the best thing to do, just kind of be aware of the situation around you, the people around you, and just fly the best you can. I think for me personally, just flying comp is really just like, challenging yourself because pilots every pilot has a different level especially at this comp there's beginner pilots there's you know there's world-class pilots here etc etc um but i think if you just compete with yourself and just try your best and learn from your mistake i think that's probably the best way for me to kind of approach the situation and you had a really good um you know a lesson that we all need to be reminded of yesterday uh you came in a little bit lower than me i i got out in a dust devil and you were like yeah i don't i don't need to do that so i'm kind of Little, give a little background of the situation. So basically, we just tagged last turn form. We're going to the end of speed. And um, while we're going to our end of speed, I see this giant dust devil. And I see, I just, I have a big smile on my face right now because I see Gavin just charging for the same uh, dust devil, too. This thing's just humongous. It's like probably like, I would say, what do you think, Gavin? Like, yeah, it was big. It was big. It was gnarly. It was just <laughs> it was full of trash everywhere. <laughs> and we're just both getting pulled into it. But Gavin's a little higher. He's he was actually playing with the uh, the dust devil. He's already kind of getting a little lift while I'm approaching it low. And we're over like a housing development with power lines. Not many places to land. The brushes here looks like they're really low, but they're probably three to four feet tall. So while you know while both of us approaching this dust devil, I just see Gavin's kind of doing the thing. Next thing I see, I see his wing just goes disappears. He's actually going up the thermal sideway. You know, I'm like. <laughs> Is this is this is this a good thing to do right now? You know, is this a smart thing to do? And you know, for me, I, I have a new baby. You know, I have a new family. So I, when my direction approach was, there's a power line running to me. I just decided, just hey, it's better to fly tomorrow than, you know, spend the time at the hospital and just you know laugh it out. You know, but Gavin took the thermal by its by the horn and made it a goal. And while I was left there in the in the hot heat of Argentina, just. Learn my lesson. No, it's yeah. okay. I'm, I'm yeah. okay with it. You know, I get yeah. to fly another day, and that's Absolutely. really what's, what's really all about. Yeah. In my in my defense, audience, I was quite a bit higher. Yeah. I think it would have been pretty scary for yeah. you to go in that yeah. thing. <laughs> Finding good lines, like this is uh, I, this is like a science that I find impossible to teach. But I I I would like to get your thoughts on it because it's everything, isn't it? I mean. I, I find that most people can climb pretty well with enough hours, you know, but it's finding those good lines. It's gliding that is, uh, yeah, is the really that's kind the ultimate of, feeling. I yeah. Think. Uh, it's really tough to, te- to teach, to learn. Uh, 
Uh, yeah, it's but flying comps is a good uh, it's a good school for that because you see all those lines, especially here. I think pilots were very disciplined that, uh, that we spread, we don't stick together, and everybody spreads, and uh, so you can see the different lines, and it's it's really interesting. Well, where when develop we, that more because some some of the listeners might not know what you're talking about because that that's important. Yeah, so we were in the lead gaggle, and instead of having all pilots in one file, uh, one after each other, we were all flying on up front all together, uh, and so we we cover a large area of. Uh, of ground, you can think of like a flock of birds, you know, like birds, like yeah, yeah, like gooses, and yeah. then uh, and then uh, there you can see the difference in the air and glider floating a bit better. You being in a uh, less less uh, favorable area, and then you of course you have to react. If you don't react, you you stick to that and you go down and down and down. So you have to change your uh, your line when it's uh, appropriate. Keep the line when it's good. Uh, when we're talking about lines, we're talking about convergence also. So it's good to understand what's a convergence and how to stay on it. Um, sometimes it's not necessary to turn. You just have to go straight and then you climb, 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 climb. Uh, we've had that like in Piedreta or there are some known places for that where you, you just literally can fly, I don't like 10Ks uh, straight, Bye. yeah, and you go up, 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 it's amazing. Uh, but if you're on the wrong side of the convergence, then you go down, 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 down. So that's the problem. So flying lines is, yeah, mainly practice, 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 and trying to understand. So first thing is, of course, to be aware that there are lines. Uh, most of pilots don't even know that. Hmm. And once you know, you have to look at birds, look at other pilots and try to understand what's happening with the air and, and feel it. Uh, one thing is also flying with a bee helps a lot because when you're flying with the brake lines, uh, you don't feel the air as well as when you're flying with bees. And uh, then you can have some uh, micro information that will eventually lead you to the best uh, the best line. So, so let's drill down a little bit in technique there. What, what are you doing? How much pressure do you have in your hands? What are you doing with your feet on your speed bar? What, what are you, what's ideally? Well, yeah, I would say that, uh, for example, when we're on the uh, end of speed, uh, really pushing and uh, for the final glide, uh, it does matter much less. Uh, it's more in the course when you're, uh, so if you're full bar, you don't feel that much mm. most of the time. So you should probably release a bit the bar and it's, it's working quite a lot. So instead of pushing like mad, trying to find the next terminal, uh, there are pilots, uh, who are flying slower, but, uh, they just uh, float in the air much better. So at the end of the, uh, of the transition, you arrive even sometimes higher than the other. Uh, I had a, a race in, well, uh, it was a cross-country uh, flight with a, a Delta, so a hang glider. And it was amazing because the, the guy was pushing hard and I was uh, trying to stick to the lines. And he was way in front of me, but super low. So at the end, I arrived and we, we met again. And so that's how I could catch up with him instead of pushing with him. And it would be a nonsense. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah. Very cool. It was funny, funny and interesting. Indeed. Jimmy? Yeah, for, for me, um, I'm kind of impatient. So I kind of want to get to point A to point B as fast as I can. And we use the smash bar, like what? Um, Robert said, it's sometimes you don't feel anything. And sometimes you actually might fly through quite a bit of thermals. Like, for, for example, like the Chelan, the last task, 
where we were stinking high and then we thought we could make it to goal but because we're so like into winning and just kind of making the task that we flew through like five thermals and we all of us dirted you know instead of we could just slow down a little bit just took a few turns we would have made it we were like short by 100 meter i mean it's crazy but that's where racing comes in that kind of each of the well like francisco says discipline you know you gotta have discipline and stuff like that for me personally i i tend to hold on to the beast quite heavily and um, i discover that for me sometimes i do kind of put most of my weight on it but right now I try to relax and just kind of pull back like a like a bow and arrow type of scenario hmm. and to me that for me that helped, that works out for me um speed bar wise my feet just kind of like a sewing machine's constantly moving adjusting the pitch of the glider um when you get a hard hit you know you kind of want to release the bar really quick but when i first started i would release and that would actually make the glider pitch up and slow down and then when you step on speed bar again you kind of lose all that momentum and you kind of use all the potential energy you saved to gain that speed again. Hmm. So now I'm really good at just, once I hit a bump, I let go and push it right back. And sometimes that's actually kind of reaffirming to just like push on that bar and feeling that there's a lot of pressure at the front edge of the wing. For me, that's comforting. That's like, oh, there's still air in front of me and things are good. And Jimmy, how did, how did you learn how to do that? Has that just been flying in comps and practicing it? Or are you actually even going out on like sledder days when it's really mellow yeah. and doing a bunch of pendulum yeah. flying? And, you know, is there, because it's quite, it's intuitive after a long time. Yeah. It's not very intuitive yeah. in the beginning. We hit a thermal and we come off our speed mm -hmm. bars, the dead wrong thing to do. Yeah. Um, for me, I actually don't have a lot of time on my days off. I work and I'm a full-time daddy daycare. So I only fly comps and that's just kind of where I learned. And I think just kind of over time, I discovered that you just have to trust your glider. I mean, your glider, today's gliders are so strong nowadays and so solid. You just have to kind of test it. You know, for, for, for a long time, I would literally just don't step on bar. And I was like, why am I coming to these races and finishing so slow? And I discovered the speed bar. Like, wow, that's an amazing tool, man. So as I kept pushing, just pushing the limit, challenging myself, challenging the glider and knowing the limits of the glider, you kind of get a feel what it can handle, what it can't handle. And that's kind of how I discovered it. And um, it, it works for me. Francisco, you have anything to add to that? Uh, well, what I can say is uh, there's two different ways of flying. It's uh, One is uh, tr trying to stay high and finding amazing lines and stuff. And the other one is, um, you know, chasing goggles and pushing the bar and the way I do it is uh, when it's a day is, is strong. So again, it's, it's observation and defining what kind of day you're flying. When I see that the day is strong, normally I go from A to B as fast as possible and just try to hit the, the next thermal and go up as fast as, as I can. But if the day is soft and, and not working so great, maybe I don't push that much far. And actually my bar is super, you know, my my feet are super sensitive and releasing and pushing just to keep my glider at 12 o'clock right above my head, trying not to pitch up and down and stuff like that. That's the most important in a, in a shitty day, let's call it, mm. or a soft day. But um, again, you know, in a, in a strong day, maybe my technique is to hold on to those, those pieces of wood on the, on the B risers and uh, push hard on, the, on my feet and uh, whatever happens to the glider, just manage it with my with my hands and not with my feet. Sometimes so it's, the, it's the opposites, you know. Mm -hmm. When when I'm trying to gain uh, better lines, uh, maybe I play more with my feet. But when I try to just go fast and keep the the glider above, I use more my hands. 
And uh, I find it that it really works with uh, with the beat risers. You can really pull them and you can be maybe full bar on, like today approaching to go. I didn't release bar ever since the last thermal. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and my glider sometimes was surging really bad and you know how bumpy the air was today, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I just hold on to those those uh, bead risers and, and control it only with the bead risers. Otherwise, I would not catch up. And that way, I was able to gain a couple of spots and uh, mm. to go. Yeah. Mm. You guys talk about instruments a little bit. Are you using it, it, sticking with speed bar and with speed and glide and climbing and everything? But are you using McCready? Are you using? Polar curves, are you, you know, how much are you looking versus how much feel? Well, I don't I don't use the instrument as I could probably, because those instruments are amazing, but I use my feelings and I look at the the glide ratio and the the speed of going down or up and stuff like that, and then try to come up with my my best glide like that. Mm. It's not that I really understand my instrument, I have to say. I don't understand it as I as I wish to, you know. Some people, maybe at Josh Kahn or s some of these guys that are really good with the instruments, maybe they do better understanding them and they get more out of them, for sure. Yeah, I'm not really an instrument guy either. You know, I was just recently in Australia and one of the pilots, Gareth, there was making fun of my dinosaur instruments that I was using. So again, which um, are go ahead and tell the audience old school Gar Garmin <laughs> and then a uh, sixty thirty Flytech. But for me personally, I just I actually only look at two things. I look at a glide ratio. So my glider, I know it flies around average on eight to one. If I'm not even getting close to that, I just step on it until I get as close as to it possible to eight to one. Because usually when you're not gliding well, you probably in sink anyway. So you step on, you're trying to get get out of that sink. And for me, that's kind of the way I fly. I just kind of look at an angle and just go with the flow. And you do you, are you pretty aggressive about changing your direction of flight when you're in sync or are you just hammer and bar? No, I do. I actually use my B risers or weight shift or just even rolling my ankle a little bit to change the speed bar and actually will turn the glider 15 degrees or so. I don't do the 45 degree turn thing. I just do a little 15 degree here and there and just see if the sync rate's going up or down and just kind of finding that fine line. Mm. And it just takes time to kind of figure that out. But sometimes you're just in sync. You just have to power through it, you know? Yeah, and I'm, I'm finding the sync here really strong uh, and, and like big seams of it, which are obviously the other side of a, you know, really nice because there were some nice convergence lines and stuff. But I was having more luck today with being a lot more aggressive. Like when we do these big, you know, when you guys uh, – I'm sure you've all done these too. Like in Brazil, the big downwinders they do up on the on the Sertão and Quixada and that kind of thing. I learned there that you can't if you just stay in the sink and hammer the speed bar because you're going downwind. You're going to stay in it to the ground. You know, you you almost had to come like 90 degrees off, which was new for me. You know, the the whole like it's supposed to be 45 degrees. That's what we learned. You know, but uh, you, that didn't. That's not enough there. And I'm finding here it's also is that are you guys finding the same? Uh, when the sink is strong, you do 90 degrees for sure. Yeah. Uh, like I said, if the day is strong, maybe you just push the bar and A to B as fast as possible. But especially with a soft day, you better do your 90 degree and find a better, better line for sure. And again, back to observation, you have to really look even behind and see what the guys are doing behind because behind they can tell you that they're going better on a, on a line, uh, more to the right or more to the left. So mm. for sure, mm. but uh, switching directions 
I mean, not switching directions, but turning uh, 90 degrees sometimes, you have to do it because like you're saying, otherwise you push all the way to the ground. Sometimes it happens that you have even to go back. I mean, you were Francisco was talking about pilots climbing on the back. Yeah, if it's climbing and you're on the wrong side of the climb, you should go back. Maybe sometimes. So if you can, yeah, it's yeah, an option. This was a this was something I also learned from Josh. Keep bringing Josh up, Josh Bob. But um, and I, I see it in Kriegel in the X Alps all the time. He's constantly going back in yeah, order to yeah. stay in we the were, air. We uh, were kind of formatted uh, in comps when I learned comps. People Just told going. me, yeah, go, go, go. And it's not good. No. Uh, sometimes you have to think and pause a bit and look around. And So uh, pilots have a trick to do on tour from time to time just to look around. That's what I do sometimes. Just uh, one tour in 0.5 or something when you don't lose uh, much altitude just to check what's going on around you and mm. go back uh, or back to course. Uh, talking about instruments, uh, we were discussing about the lines a bit earlier uh, in the discussion. Uh, instruments are useful for that also because you can feel the air uh, well, when you look at your speed. So if you don't touch the bar, of course, you will have uh, also lines with better speeds or, uh, of course, your vario, you have to look at it. So it helps for that. Uh, it certainly helps for uh, distance to next uh, next waypoint, of course. That's what I'm looking at. Uh, and also what's very important to me is to know how high I am above ground uh, uh, at goal. So mm. then it gives me the trigger to know, okay, now I can push the bar. I have a bit of, uh, of a buffer and now I can go through and so yes it's important to know some instrument does ring or they, they give you a signal or audio signal to, pre to, to inform you that okay now you're on glide to go you can just push the bar and go uh, so it's important to read the instrument but I share uh, the thoughts of Francisco and Jimmy that uh, the most important is, of course, to look around. So uh, I had a funny story about that, about it's looking at instruments. Uh, it was in the Pyrenees at uh, PwC, and we had uh, this waypoint, but that, the waypoint was on a, on a small uh, shoulder on a mountain, and I was looking at my instrument, and I was really getting close to to the waypoint, but at the same time, I was getting close to the ground and I was going down smoothly, but gently. And, and so a few meters before uh, the waypoint, I, I understood that I would never make it. So I turned and because I was watching only my instrument, I was so low that doing my turn, I landed. So <laughs> I took my glider on my shoulder. I went like really 10 meters up. And then, blim, blim, it tagged the waypoint. I took off from there, and I was right. Uh, it was final glide to gold. So I did one final glide, and I was on gold. Aww. But I was landed, so <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> I love it. Um, that just made me think of something else. The uh, the first day, um, you, you were on final glide, and you bombed out. Yeah. And then, Jimmy, you did yesterday. We all have, we've all bombed out many, 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 many times. Um, is there a common theme? Is there a, com you know, is there, is there a, um, when, when you're on the ground after those, is it, is it, is it, is it very often the same thing? Like, shit, this is something I, I really shouldn't do anymore because I, you know, or. 
Well, of course, it's competition, so you have to play the game anyway. So if you don't want to push, maybe you shouldn't join a competition. If you don't want to take some risk, if you don't want to, to you know, gamble a bit, uh, you're, well, a bit, I say that. Um, well, uh, the, the cool thing with competition nowadays is that you, you have uh, a day that you can remove from your scoring. So you are allowed to do one mistake in most of the comps. Uh, pushing is part of the game, but uh, one thing is, we mentioned it earlier, is uh, getting isolated and maybe sometimes in front you, you have this feeling that, wow, you can do everything and, you know, that's your day. Well, sometimes it is. So the, the most difficult part of it is that you have to recognize it. Sometimes you're on the flow and you can really win the task. And I, I, I won a few tasks in my career so and that's really exciting that's yeah. super nice uh it's a nice reward so i guess that's why it, uh, why we all most of the pilots uh fly winning a task is uh it's a real nice experience but uh, besides that when you land and when you bump out uh the difference between the pilots or amongst the pilots is when you have a strong mental because you you have to have this capacity of get rid of that and you know erase the board and okay next day it's a new new start and let's move on mm. uh, it's difficult it was difficult yesterday for jimmy it was difficult for me the first day we were drinking a lot of beers to so forget that but uh it worked so <laughs> jimmy before we uh, bef i want want to make maintain that a line of thought for a second he was talking about um going back and one of the things that I, I've personally learned is that, you know, that it, it often seems like the distance to go back is like, oh, my God, I, you know, I, I never did it for a while. And now every time I do do it, you, you're immediately with them. It, like the penalty is, is, is zero. I find that the race is never it's potentially one there. But where I tend to I think is the penalty is higher for when you're turning and crap. You know, like if it's an obvious climb that's behind you, it, it seems like it's the reward is always there to go get them, even though it seems like it's the wrong way. Have you had experience with that? Yeah, I mean, I deal with that all the time because you keep wanting to push forward and you don't want to backtrack and waste time. But at the same time is once you're on the ground, you're on the ground. You're not playing the game anymore. So you kind of have to remind yourself that every time that turning back is a good thing. It's okay to turn back. Yeah. It's okay to apologize to the thermal gods, you know, like go back and Get a climb, regather yourself, and then again, the race is long. You know, it could be very beginning of the day, and if you're already low, why not? Maybe towards the end you're racing. Yeah, take take some risks here and there, but on that, the moral cycle is really uh, hindering this little answering <laughs> session. But <laughs> we, we've got some very Argentinian sounds in the background. Sorry. Right. Yeah, yeah, we're surrounded. Yeah. Uh, one thing though is uh, if you remember how how you went outside the the last turmoil is also something to keep in mind because mm -hmm. if it's if there was a you were on the lee side and there was a big sink after the turmoil, then it might be not a good option to go back to it. Yeah. Uh, so it it really depends. But uh, if there are so strong turmoils and you know that you're not on the lee side of the turmoil and that you will be able to catch up when you turn back, then yes, you have to consider uh, going back to the to the gaggle. Uh, but for that, you have to uh, the the uh, maybe one of the main theme is uh, here to be aware of the surroundings. So of course, if you 
push like mad and after 10 minutes you realize that oh maybe i should go back i will have a look it's too late yeah so once you leave a terminal and you know that there are people still in the terminal you should check what they're doing and sometimes they will hit the core at the right moment you're leaving the terminal and then you're definitely not in a good position so you should go back immediately so yeah. it depends yeah Sure, depends. but sure. the main thing is be aware of happen what happens to, uh, in the, around you and in the surroundings. So we've got a we've got a uh, a dinner to go to, so I want to be mindful of our time. But uh, one more question, and then I'm going to ask you guys also. You can plant this as we're talking, but uh, you're like your most exciting, cool comp story. But before we get to that, how do you guys approach? The overall strategy for the week, because you know, we, we now that we have FTV, which is super cool, it allows us to push a lot harder. Um, you know, Francisco, this is an important comp for you. I know you're taking it pretty seriously because it means you know defending your position for the world's team. Rewind to the, before the first day. How how would you generally approach? day one versus day three versus the last day. And, and obviously that depends on where your position is, but talk about just kind of overall strategy. Well, see, I'm bad for this. I'm not a strategic guy, I guess. Uh, I'm the guy that pushes every day, pretty much. Try to do my best every day. And uh, I know we have a, a day that we can discard if we make a mistake, uh, but you should never count on that day but just try to do your best every day. And uh, if one day doesn't work, then you can discard it. At the same time, that means that you can push it. You can push, and maybe you mist you're mistaken by pushing, but that gives you the opportunity to do it and discard it if you if you didn't make it. So I guess uh, trying the best every day is, is my only my only strategy you just here. Yeah. yeah. And uh, again, you know, it's, it's like you count on that, so... I think uh, you can push every day pretty much. In this would situation. that would that change for you at all? Say if you were going into the last day and you were in the lead, or you were say securely in second or third, would you would you be more conservative? Well, it always depends on what type of tasks you did before, for sure. So if you're comfortable, you you have at least five good tasks. Uh, you can either push it to try to win an another one, or you can relax and try to just uh, give. Uh, uh, put 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 an, uh, another good task in your list and uh, and just be safe. But uh, <laughs> you just heard me. You know you can push it again. I said. <laughs> I think uh, my my technique is just to push it every day, pretty much. Cool. For me, I just kind of approach this as a learning experience, and some kind of new at this again. And for me, every day I just trying to learn as much as I can and just kind of get a good feel. I think the best advice I ever kind of got was just basically just fly and then let your body do its natural thing it's kind of like trying to get into a flow so once you're flying the paraglide without thinking about it you're using your brain power to looking at observing what's around you the birds are doing what the wind's doing you kind of you kind of just get a bigger picture of the situation i find that really helps for me hmm. um, for me safety is number one you know i always consider safety is number one and um i'd rather land than not fly another day. That's kind of my approach to that situation. Yeah, I want to dig into that just specifically with you because you you and it, and maybe compare this to pre-accident post because you were telling some stories oh. the other night about how aggressive you were when you yeah. first got into it and you were flying oh, like right. comp gliders day three and you know just like you were yeah. just full on and then and I'm 
did the accident, was it literally that that changed it? Or because now you're like, I don't give a shit if I bomb out. I'm yeah. here to have a good time. Yeah, it was pretty funny. I actually, when I started paragliding, I got invited to Bayou with my friend Paul down, down to uh, Bayou de Bravo. I have never flown thermals. He just basically <laughs> told me to go learn at this coastal soaring site. And then next week, meet me at Valle. Oh and God. then literally, like, I showed up the week before the 2009 World Championship. I saw, like, all these cool pilots, like Lisa Udry, like, putting in the French flag on their advanced gliders. And these things are so bitching. Just going out there flying with them. It's like, wow, you could circle on this stuff? I can get up to, like, 6,000 feet? This is awesome. You know? I came back just... Or the wrong size glider, or the attic two, small, you know, a pod and everything. You know, I was bitching and sign up for every single race as possible. Just charging, learning as much as I could. And literally from 2009 to 2010, I got a wild card at Chelan World Cup. And I remember meeting Andre Ransford from South Africa. And he basically kind of just told me straight up, it's like, hey, your demographic is most likely to get hurt. Hmm. Because you just charge and you don't care, you know. You, most likely going to get hurt. Literally within three days, I threw my reserve. <laughs> so that always stuck to my head. And every time I do something stupid, I always kind of have that thought in my head. Um, so, yeah, it's, you just have to time and patience, you know. Like when I jumped up class, my rules was basically win the class three times before I went up a class. And that's what I did. So I won sport class three times, won zero class three times. And then when the time I jumped up, that's when the Enzo one came out. Mm. And that was, I think, was too big of a jump for me. I wish I would have jumped on something like an Ice Peak 6, something like that, more mellow. And then maybe that would have prevented a lot of accidents, you know. Mm. And I think, I, you know, that's a lack of experience, not because the glider is bad. Just I didn't. I didn't. You just weren't ready. I just weren't ready for it. Yeah. And then that took a long time. I mean, it was stupid for us to go fly Owens Valley in midsummer, first of all. You know, that's how the accident happened. And um, after that, it took a while for me to kind of get back to the sport, you know, and once I'm back, it's it's kind of like riding a bicycle again. You kind of rediscover the fun of, you know, traveling to foreign places and meeting all your old friends again, like seeing Francisco in his home country and checking things out and seeing Gavin and Robert, you know, like different parts. And it's funny, like once you come to these comps, you see the same guys over and over again. It's kind of like reunion in certain ways. Mm. Another cool thing about comps is like, you know, you kind of go to places that normally you don't tourists don't go to, you know, less travel locations and really get to know the people and experience the lifestyles and stuff like that hmm. and I, I really highly recommend any pilots from any you know levels to do comps because i think it's great i mean you pay here how much do we pay for the comp like 150 whatever like 200 doesn't matter bucks, yeah. a very small amount you get to fly for seven days with meteorological background you get to have pilots to talk to share ideas and just chit chat and just have a good time and learn i mean that's a great value for yeah. what you get you know minus the expenses that come in here so JP, what about you? Do you have a kind of a an overall strategy or do you have, because you've been racing a long time, would you say 92? Uh, 98. 98. Yeah. yeah. Do you have kind of a, um, you know, a strategy that, that seems to work? Uh, I would say I'm still learning, first of all. Yeah. I came here with a firm intention not to use my uh, discard day. So I did it on the first day. So you see, I still have lots of, of things to know. I knew it. I shouldn't. But anyway. Uh, uh, yeah, no, it's just, I mean, it's a long process, I think. Um, it's also a question of mental. So I, I realized a few years ago that uh, it's, if you want to win a comp, it's, uh, there is a different thing between winning tasks and winning comps. And I think those are two different 
kind of persons. Uh, all three around the table, we might be more the kind of winning tasks person instead of winning comps. Um, I've seen a lot of people winning comps without winning any task in their entire life. Yeah. Uh, and it's a different uh, way of flying. So we didn't mention it today, but uh, yeah, if you, if you want to win a comp, uh, you have to fly a bit more conservative and there is a way of doing it. Uh, the French have a very good strategy for that. Uh, it's, it's just to put you in a position where you can kind of be dominant and uh, uh, wait and see what's, what's going on and see what are the best opportunities and follow the best ones. Uh, it happens here also. Uh, we can also detect the pilots who are acting or behaving like that. Uh, I wish I would do so when I want to win a comp, which I am on the way to that. Uh, but I'm still more excited about winning uh, a task uh, so far. Yeah, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> JP, keep the mic. Um, can you regale us with uh, the, 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 the comp story that comes to mind? It could be the most exciting or the most crazy, or the, it doesn't have to be you either. It could be something you saw. No, but. so uh, yeah, I've been in many, many camps. I have had uh, many stories. I remember that British Open in uh, Saint Andre. Uh, I was talking to Calvo by the time it was Calvo was the mid director, and I, I was announcing, oh, this pilot uh, through reserve and etc. and the funny thing is, next morning he explained to the people uh, at the meeting, yeah, Robert uh, announced many reserves. And the last one was himself under the reserve, was calling me and saying, oh, Calvo, I'm under the reserve. So there were, that day there were seven reserves Whoa. on the same, day, on the same wow. day. We've had some sad stories. I was in Piedraita with my family in 2011. And then my kids asking me, why are, do, are you doing that sport? I say, why are you asking the question? Well, you could die. And then, yeah, you have this kind of... Um, of uh, feelings, uh, we we did this epic flight in in Chelan, which I was lucky enough to be first on uh, on goal when we did it. Uh, the two hundred and twenty four uh, k's it was super funny. Uh, yeah, so I would say that uh, it's it's real adventure. Uh, flying comps is uh, uh, meeting people is uh, also. Um, living incredibly incredible stories the, the, when you land you have so many images in your head so many things to say that's it's it's just impossible to share with anybody but pilots and uh, i have very often the feeling that when i end up a camp i, I come back home with a real full adventure and so yeah it, it made my uh, my day or my holidays Cool. Jimmy, before you tell yours, I'll, uh, it, were any of you guys at the super final with the fire flying in Columbia in 2000, it was 2012, but it was 2013. So we were, I don't remember what day it was, but it was the, it was my first year of comps and I got quite lucky because the PWC was in Sun Valley that year and, and I got really lucky there. And I, so I made it the super final and, uh, and I was just getting trashed at the super final. It was very humbling, but, uh, the, uh, we had the, they, they light the sugar cane on fire in Rodonio. Those of you who've been there, you've seen all these and, uh, some of them can get really big and these huge columns. And it was quite a stable, slow day. And the lead gaggle was, was trying very hard to get into goal. And they, and, uh, Kriegel was there and Yasin and, uh, and a few of them flew into the column and, uh, 
And Kriegel later posted his his instrument, and it was a 20-meter climb. And Yasin went in to this thing like 50 feet off the ground. So Kriegel went in way high and just Kriegled it. He went in, lost his glider, full stalled, got his glider back, lost his glider again, full stalled. Matt Beechner was just circling on the outside of this column, and it was that black. It was just a column of black. And Farmer was like, I'm not going in there. And he just watched just one guy after another go into this thing. It just explode. But Yasin went in right off the ground, and it took him – 2,000 feet above the top of the column, like just straight up. It, his glider exploded right away. He never got it back together. It twisted up like a rope. He said he, it definitely had like more than 20 twists. It was literally just a rope over his head. And uh, and he went to throw his reserve and he thought, oh, no, no, I can't throw it yet because I'll land in the fire. So he went 2,000, he just rode it all the way to the top and came out the top of the thing and went, oh, okay, now I can throw. <laughs> Anyway, that was my favorite cop story, but do you have a favorite favorite cop story? Just just one thing to add, uh the generate cumulus. So we yeah. call them pyrocumuluses and totally. Uh, yeah, really this this one was powerful. big. Yeah, yeah this yeah, one was yeah. big. It wasn't a little one. And uh, uh, Luke Armand got up this, the next day and uh and gave a very heartfelt I don't want to ever see anybody do that again. No, <laughs> you know, we, it was we were really in a, dangerous. In a, in a comp, uh, I think it was next year. There was um, a paramotor circling the fires to prevent us to go inside. The really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, they set up safety. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was a new <laughs> new setup. Jimmy, you got a favorite comp story? Yeah, it's it's more like a like experience, you know, like when you start the sport, you kind of have this dream of doing something amazing and stuff. But, you know, to be serious, you know, like this is like ESPN Ocho stuff, you know, like not to not to make fun of the sport or anything, but it's just like it's such a new growing sport. I kind of describe this as like the sport to me kind of reminds me of like in the seventies, you know, where guys are loading up their motorcycles and vans and just kind of vega bombing it and just trying their hearts out. And there's no money involved. People really do this for their passion and they just truly love the sport. That's what I really like about the sport. You know, that's yeah. what really kind of drives me. And you just get to see people from around the world and get to visit them and stuff. I mean, to me, that's kind of the, the neatest thing. I mean, winning a task is great. You know, winning a comp is good, but I think just kind of hang out friends is probably like, like the favorite parts for me. So I always say, you know, people with the most fun wins the wins the comp, right? You know, even though you could be doing shitty, you still have the <laughs> best fun. <laughs> well, in terms of stories, I uh, have many stories like the fire ones in Brazil. Also, you know, there's a lot of fires in Brazil. And last time uh, in the PWC there, there was a, one of these huge calms and all the guys were going in and I said, no, I'm not going to go in there. It's just ugly. And of course, I'm, the day turned bad for me because the guys went super high and I had to scratch all the way to the to the goal and they made it before me. So that's a bad story for me. <laughs> yeah, but I guess uh, stories about comp, uh, comps are all, you know, just raising and all the flying part is, is pretty much the same except with different... Uh, touch-ups, but the good stories are behind the comps, the days you don't fly, which many can be told, many cannot be told. <laughs> Those are the best uh, stories. Uh, I need a lot of time to tell them, but uh, there's many. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll save it for another show. Um, before we close, do you guys have any last bit of advice for the audience? Anything, you know, the the... The, the many people who listen that are maybe thinking about doing their first comp or maybe thinking about taking their first trip to Valle or Roldanillo this winter or here or Chile, um, you know, just any kind of advice for them or what they should be thinking about? Well, the first advice is go as a, 
as a learning process. So don't don't think you're going to win the comp. That that makes it safer. Uh, second is uh, yeah, just go to comps. The the way I started is I thought, hey, I can go fly cross country and I have somebody to retrieve me, and I have all the safety around me and everything, and experienced pilots just taking me by the hand to long places, long long flights. So my advice is just just be as a student to the first comps, but go, go to comps if you can. Yeah, I would uh, push it even further in, in your direction. Uh, keep your glider. Don't buy a comp glider for your first comp. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. So just Great one. make it with your glider, uh, learn to fly. So you should change from to uh, another glider once you really push the bar 100% and you feel comf comfortable with that then you can change the glider else you don't use your glider enough so you just keep it and uh, of course it's frustrating uh, you see those comb gliders flying and literally you know leaving you but uh, that's part of the game so I, i would also recommend people to enjoy and so Just remove the pressure and try to make go as much as you can. And as we all said, safety first. So don't put yourself into trouble. Uh, and don't try to beat the uh, lead gaggle when, you, when you're doing your first comp. doesn't work. <laughs> there, there, there's a good thing you hinted on there, though, um, that I've been thinking about quite a bit lately. You know, the, the two-liners these days, let's use the Xeno as an example because it's been a huge hit and tons of people are flying it. Um, I think there's a lot of hidden risk there because it's it it's a it's a super solid glider. The two liners these days are amazing gliders. They're really solid, and I think they they give people a lot of uh, false confidence. Yeah, uh, you made a point. Uh, I would recommend any comp pilot to do SIV before his first comp. That's very important. Uh, go go to a lake, whatever. Uh, find a school and have a. Uh, reliable uh, teacher or, uh, and and do SIV. Uh, it's very, very important to know uh, how to recover from different situations and also to learn about your glider and to have the feeling of the glide uh, of your glider. Uh, that's super important. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you said that too because I think people get a new respect for big spanny gliders when they start stalling them and doing weird stuff to them it's they're it, it's uh, it's not like uh, learning how to stall a beam no, I, I come from a flat country in belgium it's very flat so people used to buy big boys gliders and we had this uh, championship in switzerland half of the people wouldn't take off because they were frightened by the conditions and uh, i respect that i totally respect it and uh, that was i think a good decision But it's a bit sad also because if they came with their own glider, they, they would have, uh, or uh, more, uh, you know, adapted glider, they would have flown for sure. And it was a nice day uh, to fly. So, yeah, uh, sometimes you fly your own uh, takeoff and, and sight and you feel comf confident. And But just go try your glider in the Alps or in some rough mountains and then you'll see, okay, Maybe I, I should practice more before uh, changing my glider. Uh, I had one person coming. Well, it's it's very. Uh, I have very often a person coming to me. Ah, oh, look, I, I'm willing to buy a Zeno or I'm willing to buy a, a Flow or whatever. Uh, and I, I'm I'm really try to cool them a bit. But I have to say, I have to admit one thing though is uh, it's also a matter of uh, feeling. So. Mm. I started to fly 
come gliders quite quite early in in my career because I felt more confident under it. So, but it's the behavior of the glider versus the pilot. So uh, it's not only a matter of skills, but something that you know there is a interaction between you and your glider. And if you have a good fit, then why not? But you have to know that you have to rem- remain uh, and stay humble uh, below the glider. I've never seen a glider failed. I've always seen pilots failing. Sure. Yeah, I want to add to that too. I think it's very important to kind of start with a slower glider. And then you ha- you can have just as much fun, you know. It's it's just a funny feeling when you get this glider, you get a good start, you're crossing the valley, you know, you're just smashing bar. I just remember the time at, you know, the rat race, me and Kiwi just crossing the the the, the the Apple Gay Valley and just thinking that we were doing this, you know, at the start. And next, you know, like five seconds later, you know, these big boys, gliders, the skinny ninja wings are flying over us. But that's kind of cool because as you have as much fun as you can with these wings and you gain experience and respect for wings, um, you kind of look back now and laugh at these experiences and how much fun you had. And then, of course, flying these wings, you're going to make tons of mistakes and know your limits and stuff. But that's how you learn. You have to make mistakes. If you just go out there and do the best, you never learn the basic. You didn't really set a strong foundation at first. And I, I, I truly believe that you have to spend a lot of time flying, spend a lot of time developing that process and then getting into a system and working your way up to a, you know, those tiny little skinny comp wings that everybody wants to fly. But Yeah, I mean, look at some of the guys here. I mean, there's a, there was a guy in an Arctic today that was just crushing, crushing it. it out there, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, it's awesome. Yeah. And that's, 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 that's got to be a really good feeling. That's you a good know? point to make. Like, yet last year we went to the Canadian Nationals in um, Pemberton, and these deltas were keeping up with the, the Enzo 3s because we can't push as far or close to the cliff. These guys could just full bar to the areas, and then the advantage of the comp ladder was really taken away. You know, it's actually better to fly a Zeno and a, and a, and a Delta yeah, at that, that point, you know? Last year at the Monarca, Marco, I mean, he's a very talented, great comp pilot, but he won it on the Queen. You know, he won it on a Sea Glider. He beat everybody yeah. on the Enzos and the, and, uh, because he could just, he mashed bar through all the convergence. We were always coming off like, oh God, trying yeah. to deal. And the he just kept one. going. Yeah. <laughs> it was so. pretty cool. Well, I stayed in the previous conversation. I lost my mind for a bit. <laughs> But uh, what I wanted to add to the previous conversation was uh, uh, don't try to beat your next guy, the guy next to you. So the first time you go to a comp, just go as a learner again and uh, don't try to beat the guy next to you because it doesn't change anything in the results. To win a comp, it requires a full week of good flying. So when you're flying next to a guy and you're like, ah, I want to beat this guy next to me, you don't even probably don't even know who, who he is. But at that moment, you just want to beat whoever is around you. That's a huge mistake everybody makes, especially in the beginnings. And that's when you, when you get yourself into trouble, when you push it more than you need it, just to beat the guy next to you. And that's not going to change anything in the that's comp result. super good So nice. just, yeah. uh, you know, keep in mind that to win a comp it takes seven full really good flying days from you uh so most likely in the beginning it's not going to happen because you don't have experience so just go to a comp to enjoy every single flight not winning against your body next to you just use your body be the be a body to him and fly with him that's what that's what it's going to take you to go. <laughs> and I'm still mad at you. Yes. I don't I don't forgive you. 
So disappointed. <laughs> Guys, great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And listeners, I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, let's go get some chow. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. I hope you enjoyed that live show here from Argentina. And uh, as always, all we ask for is a buck show. If you got something out of this, uh, treat it like a magazine subscription and you can support us, but you can support us in many other ways. It doesn't have to be financial. You can blog about it. You can share it with your friends. You can talk about it on the way up to launch. What it's all about is just sharing exactly like this was, just uh, tips and strategies to make you safer and a better pilot. So hope you got something out of it. Uh, but if you want to support us financially, that's what makes this all possible. If you can, please only do it if you can. Uh, I don't want it to impinge on your lifestyle in any way. This is just a bonus kind of thing. But if you can, uh, go to cloudbasedmayhem.com and you'll see the donate button there. And you can do it as a one-time thing through PayPal where you can become a supporter through Patreon. And we now also are accepting uh, Bitcoin and all that crazy currency. So I don't know too much about that, but we've got that now on the website. That's kind of fun. If you're into crypto and uh, yeah, that's about it. Thanks so much. Appreciate your support. Appreciate you listening and we'll see you on the next one. Cheers. Cheers.